Hello, hello. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. And this is Hot Take Think Tank. Liam, I need to see uh, what you think of this headline. All right? Okay. Okay. UBC student commutes from Calgary cheaper than paying Vancouver rent. (laughs) (laughs) That is wild. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, wild, but also kind of believable because Calgary is like... So much cheaper to live in than Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, it's and, amazing. And it's not that long a flight. And <laughs> <laughs> and it's like not that easy to commute from the suburbs of Vancouver to UBC anyway. So Yeah. Honestly, huh. it might take the same distance for me to bus into to bus to UBC from the suburbs of Vancouver. Right, yeah. And for some, him. <laughs> someone like if you had to race someone and they are living near the airport in Calgary. They uh, might beat me. Might be. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow. So, yeah, yeah, basically, there's like super cheap flights. They're $150, I think, a pop. And uh-huh. so, um, he all his classes are in two days of the week. So he basically calculated okay. it, and he'll pay about $1,200 a month to commute. Um, whereas he would like the average. Uh, mm price of a one bedroom in vancouver is 2100 so he's gonna save like about 900 dollars <laughs> a month by doing this <laughs> wild yeah that's a wild story <laughs> yeah i'm like huh. impressed by the ingenuity and not impressed by how much jet fuel that would take but like i yeah, kind totally. of there's like i some... hope there's like enough stories like this right we've got like students living under yeah. bridges now we've got students commuting by plane so like it maybe makes me think of, like the kind of person who hears about like an all-you-can-eat buffet that lasts all day right and they're like well for 12 dollars, as long as i go there for three meals right i'll save so much money oh my gosh that happened when i was working at a restaurant downtown we had like a mother's day um buffet mm-hmm. and this one guy just came in and it was like i don't know 35 dollars or something like that he came right. in and all he ate was crab legs that's how you do it that's how you do it (laughs) there's some things you can eat that you'll get less than your money's worth and other things you can eat that you get more than your money's worth exactly forget about those muffins don't touch them forget about anything that's like up front they put the salad bar up front that's how they get you (laughs) right yeah (laughs) go go for the back back. to the part the part that doesn't get refilled as often that's where you get your money's worth (laughs) you know the thing is i just don't feel like i would actually enjoy eating plate after plate of crab crab's legs but our chef like actually went out and kicked him out (laughs) i think you'd only enjoy it if like you were really focused on how much money you were saving right you have like a little note paper where you're writing like okay that's worth ten dollars that's worth ten dollars that's worth you know all right i'm in in the i'm making money here (laughs) yeah i don't care about like how it tastes the palate fatigue like i don't want variety or like a satisfying meal i just want to (laughs) like make (laughs) make my money back it's so good yeah no that's (sighs) why i wonder i that seems like is it like some promotional price on the flights or something that seems wildly cheap or just like really cramped and no (gasps) luggage sort of thing. I mean, I think the airlines are just, their pricing is so absurd. Like it doesn't actually correspond with like the cost. Um, Right. It's like this. Somehow run a profitable business at the end of the day, or at least marginally. So, well, it's very marginal and yeah, they have lots (laughs) of, tricks to and various strategies to try and get it back but they do offer like these really really popular routes they will totally do um right like sort of lost thing 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure they yeah. also have like business class probably on those planes that helps mm. even it out. But right. Huh. <sighs> so yes. Well, props to that kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know someone who works in the like uh, uh, environmental impact part of the UBC organization. I wonder what he's he's thinking reading that article. <laughs> like they're all focused on like getting solar panels and renewable energy and all that, promoting e-bikes as a way to commute to school. Uh, he's probably not psyched to hear someone flying to school and back every week. Well, then the news reporting on it might give a couple more people an idea. But yeah. <laughs> oh, well. So yes, the the breaking news is that Vancouver remains unaffordable. <laughs> right, but that's not our that, that's, <laughs> that's not what we we're supposed to be talking about. We we're supposed to no. talk about last week's Cure Here article. Yes, uh, a cry bully. How Another to spot one. a cry bully? Yes, yes. It was uh, it was fun to read. I, er, read <laughs> that's silly. I wrote it. It was also fun right. to read, I, but I, it was fun to write. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was kind of nerve wracking. Like, I feel like my heart was mm. pounding a bit extra this week, uh, because oh, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a mm, controversial topic, I guess. Or like sure. if a crybaby reads it, they're going to be really mad at you. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and they're maybe the kind of person who like knows how to mobilize a movement against you. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> That's <an> idea. <laughs> but nothing like that yet that I've heard of. I, I didn't see any. Uh, I don't know. You seem to be okay. No pitchforks in the background or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The mob has not yet arrived. Maybe they're still organizing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I think you expressed some curiosity. Right, um, right. Right up top, you say, since a local organization is currently under attack from false allegations of a social justice nature, and then <laughs> you do not expand on that. You just move <laughs> right along to the next point. So we'll get to your other points, but can you tell us about what's going on locally something something's happening that made you write this article yes i can i feel like i was like unsure about whether to get into it or not in the article because sure. it's sort of like oh is it good to draw more attention to it or is it like more beneficial to just yeah not do that well, but I, it, I feel like you usually write about bigger ideas and you don't want to get bogged down on the details so much about like a specific instance true. of something you're trying to write broadly about Exactly. But and that's yeah. what the podcast is for, maybe. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And I, I just never would want to like instigate any type of mobbing. Right. So I don't want to like totally. target <laughs> a particular person, which is part of why I try and usually write one level up from that. But um, yeah, this was um, the Vancouver Dyke March basically posted on Instagram about mm -hmm. false allegations that had uh, been recently made against them. And um, I do have some friends that are involved. And so I kind of, uh, it was shared with me who the person making the allegations is. I'm mm -hmm. not going to name that person because I don't want it all to sure. send people <laughs> uh, in their direction. But um, it is actually someone who has uh, fabricated things that I have said in the past. Uh, oh, interesting. <laughs> so not, not personally credible to you so much then <laughs> no no and like i think this person like over the years more and more and more people are realizing that like right. once they decide they don't like someone that they're they just do everything possible to ruin them <laughs> so <Right. laughs> hmm. um it's happened enough times that um i'm not at all like conflicted about what what's happened here i do 100 believe the Vi vancouver dyke march that the allegations are false 
Um, and the allegations are like, oh, that they're turfy, um, that they took too long with the Palestine statement, which is funny because they're they're a nonprofit that puts on a, an event. I think it's in June every year. So right. they don't like meet in like October or November, <laughs> right? Like... Right. Yeah. Well, and like it's weird the sort of demand for every organization to issue statements on all of these sort of issues. Like, right. I saw I saw like a headline that was like um, uh, that Kraft has like a um, an advertisement for the Super Bowl that's like about anti-Semitism. Mm. Which seems weird for Kraft, the right. like cheese company. I, d- I don't know. It's just, it's um, you know, sort of. It, it seems a little absurd the idea that um, people and organizations can get in trouble for not talking. Like, because like, there's just so much mm. that happens in the world. Um, it's it's like, right? How, how like, off, like yeah. how many things do you have to denounce every day? And like exactly if, if you denounce some but not others, are you like implicitly endorsing the others? It seems it seems I like mean, an unwinnable yeah. game. <laughs> you can literally give yourself OCD like mm. by trying to totally. like say all the right things all yeah, the time. Yeah. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> yeah, scrupulosity. <laughs> Have you heard that term before? It's like ah. a, a specific kind of OCD that's about like being morally righteous. Uh-oh. Usually in the context <laughs> like of religious OCD, where it's like right. worrying that God's going to see your thoughts and you're going to think the wrong thoughts and you are very obsessive about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, some of the things you write about make me think of scrupulosity where it's like, <sighs> you know, this like suit, you could get into such a panicked mood about like making sure that you are denouncing absolutely everything you need to denounce. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. This is the perfect segue because um, I got uh, on my Instagram in the stories, I asked people right. to share their cry bully experiences. Mm-hmm. And I have like several that I want to share. Um, but I'll start with one where it's like, you are literally giving this person <laughs> scrupulosity. Um, <laughs> so this person lived in a collective queer house. Mm-hmm. And basically one roommate said they overheard another roommate saying the n-word while singing along to a drake song while she thought she was home alone huh so (laughs) from there a bunch of other roommates said yeah yeah i also heard that even though they they did not like the person leaving the comments like that was a lie. I did not hear that person say it. But basically, everyone mm. like jumped on the bandwagon that this person saying <laughs> the N word, well, thinking they were home alone, and they literally got evicted over that. Oh my gosh! So wow, <laughs> that's like the type of hypervigilance that's expected of you. That you right. like, you have to be careful what you say when you're literally alone. <laughs> right. Yeah. And 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 like that total divorce of like the word from the context where it's like not um like the problem with saying that word is like the the implicit racism i guess in it but right. and and particularly the explicit racist racism that a lot of people use that word with but like mm-hmm. see that, that reminds me i went to a kanye west concert i might mm-hmm. be able to get canceled just for that i guess it was before <laughs> a lot of the stuff happened but um it was in vancouver um a lot of white people in Vancouver, Rogers Arena, pretty pretty full with, uh, you know, people of all sorts, but lots of white people. <laughs> and yeah. he did this thing where he would he would cut the music and expect the crowd to sing loud enough and enthusiastic enough to, like, amp him up to keep going with the next verse. And, right. if, and if we didn't sing enough, he would 
restart the song and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and you could just feel like cause it, the N word was involved and you could just feel the crowd like pulling back at that word. Like, we know you want us to, but we don't know if we're supposed to or like if we it was. Wow. It was weird. It was a weird do you experience. remember what year was that? <laughs> oh, what year would that have been? It was the year Life of Pablo came out. Life of Pablo must have been 2018 or so. 2016. 2016. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. A different era. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember like kind of when that became like more of a taboo. Specifically in the context of I mean, songs. I, he was trying to be... I, like I think that was part of what he was getting. I don't know. Getting oh, okay, at. okay. Like it, it was, it was. It was intentionally provocative, maybe. Yes. Yeah. That's, okay. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense with that guy. Not surprising. Yeah, no. <laughs> Such a that, that's kind of like a cool troll move to be like, I am in a room of like majority white fans. What can mm. I? How can I mess with them? Yeah. Oh man. Fun okay. Wow. You have yeah, more stories to share. <laughs> I do have more stories to share. Okay. Um, another reader got publicly called out as a sexual predator for mm. flicking their best friend's nipple. And the best friend is a guy. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a weird one. <laughs> it's I... terrible. Can you imagine like <laughs> that literally people in your city have been told that you are a sexual predator and that is right. what it is based on? Right, totally. Like that that's such that's not what people think of when they hear those words. Exactly. When you hear someone's sexual predator, you're not like, oh, that person probably flicked a, someone's nipple one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That yep. that could mess up uh, trying to meet anyone if the if your your reputation precedes you and that's how your reputation uh, is being framed. Huh. Yes. Yes, it could. Hello, this is editing Kier here interrupting. I just wanted to let you know that we made a couple of edits to better maintain the anonymity of the writer of one of the comments that we discuss, but our editor, Laser, uh, does such a good job. It's so smooth. I don't even think you're going to notice. Okay, back to the show. Um, there was another one where someone got forced out of a, a, a restaurant job for being unsafe, mm -hmm. and um, the unsafe thing was that they wore, like, hippie like festival clothes and that they had the hairline and mm. they actually totally changed their hair and changed their clothes but it wasn't enough they still had to be fired <laughs> huh interesting mm-hmm Editing here is back. I uh, just wanted to clarify that this person did not get fired from the restaurant, but their schedule was changed and then they were moved from front of house to back of house and they decided to quit after that. Okay, but here, here is the mm. one that like outraged the most people. I got so many messages just being like, mm. what? Okay, okay I'm going to read this one verbatim. So this mm. is a quote. Um... When I was an undergrad, a male student asked me out. I said, no, sorry, I'm a lesbian. I'm 100% homosexual, despite trying to force myself to be bi back in high school. Time went on, thought nothing of it. The next year, he came out as a trans demigirl, still not entirely sure what that means, 
and put me on blast on Facebook for the rejection, saying that lesbians love all women and homosexual lesbians are genital fetishists and that we need to unlearn our trauma. Somehow, I was supposed to know that this male person did not truly identify as male, even when they did publicly identify uh, (laughs) as male at the time, and my rejection was deeply invalidating. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow, that's something else. That really feels like like a story from a whole other world to me. I don't. <laughs> what was it? You were using the term homosexual lesbian. That's, yeah. Those are the genital fetishist lesbians. Who... Apparently, yes, <laughs> yes. And demi girl is also a new one to me. I mean, yeah. I know like a demi means like half. Like demi Hercules is a demigod. Mm-hmm. Um. So I suppose a demigirl is like a specific non-binary uh, option? Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess, I don't mm. know what this person means by it, but I, if I had to guess, that might be like a, a trans person who's not going to like medically transition. Okay. I don't know, but that's that's what right. I would guess hearing a trans demigirl, right? It's like, I'm kind yeah. of a girl. Maybe I can like skip the surgeries or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and maybe I can like, you know, uh, rewrite history a little bit and feel better about this awkward interaction I, I had. <laughs> it's so like, it's, oh my gosh. First of all, you would need to be literally clairvoyant to avoid this one. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. It's like all of us have, or many of us anyways, have been like spurned someone that we liked sure. didn't like us back. And you can have, like, I've had the craziest like inner monologues about it, right. Where I'm just like, Oh, like this is why that happened. Or this mm-hmm. is what's wrong with that person. And if they like, you know, like would anyone ever not want to date me? That's cruelty or whatever. Right. right. But totally. it's like, it's okay to have those thoughts. It's okay to like yell them into your pillow or write them in a diary, but to like, publicly call someone out who didn't want to date you especially with all the context of this it's just like it's so unhinged yeah. it totally is well and it's like it, it's like you fall into like contradictory territory so quickly because it's like is that not like a really uh, uncomfortable and coercive thing to do right to when someone rejects you no mm-hmm. means no right you're not supposed to um that's it's so weird. Well, and it's I feel like it, it does get at a bit like the, the thing I found so interesting about your article or about like the idea of cry bullies. It's this idea that it's like um it's like an unintended consequence of the like movement to try and like believe victims. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like I think that that is a movement that's very justified and good. I don't think that the, the previous baseline of like, well, only if someone's convicted of a crime, should we punish the perpetrator? Right. I think that that was like a line too far in that direction. Um, and so it's like, let's redef- redefine these social interactions and say like, by default, we should believe victims, um, which I think is probably good, but it has a side effect of um, anyone can tap into that new like social capital that exists. Right. Mm-hmm. It like, it enables this thing where it's like, if you say that you are the victim of, you know, uh, racism because your roommate said the N word while singing along to a song in the other room, uh, <laughs> then like you, you can tap into this like power source that was previously like unattainable. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's like this, the, the cry bully phenomenon feels like a, like a, a side effect of something that was good, but it's like, if we don't talk about the, the negative aspects of a change, 
then there's like no no plan to mitigate mitigate those negative aspects right and i feel like that's what the art that's what i love so much about the article right it's like how to spot a cry bully it's like you're not arguing like that we should believe victims less Mm -hmm. you're saying like here you know here's a problem with that whole way of thinking um let's just address that problem right like let's keep our eye out for this sort of thing so that we can keep believing real victims <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah. and keep an eye out uh, to not let the, the system be abused by, by other people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I think that's the thing. A lot of times if you're writing about like a particular, say like loophole or yeah, an unintended consequence um, mm. of a certain change that's been made, people think that you like uh, are throwing out the whole change right that, that you totally. don't support like i i don't support like believing survivors or whatever mm. um but that's silly come on like we can we can be a little <laughs> smarter than that and realize that like it's possible to be like yeah like maybe that's a good default overall in general maybe yeah. that's you know the way to go but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be weird side effects or like uh uh, unusual use cases or whatever that like okay. are worth talking about because people also wrote me in saying like I lost my job I lost all my friends I almost lost my life like people right. like these false allegations can like literally like ruin people's lives <laughs> like and okay. and end their careers and it, it it's absurd to me to think like oh like we need to do so much to protect this progress like to the point that we have to pretend that this isn't happening and right. um like tell people it's not happening to them when it is happening to yeah, them <laughs> totally. well to the it's like it feels like a very like a, a perspective you'd take if you felt like your position was weak like that the mm. idea of believing victims is like a fragile thing that needs to be protected from any criticism Whereas I feel like it, it makes it stronger and like more sustainable to let criticism come to your worldview and to like incorporate it and to improve the, the way you think of things and the way that you act um, based on that criticism, right? It's like not all criticism is going to be valid. And if it was like, you know, this is so common, we need to go back to the old ways of, you know, the, relying entirely on a criminal justice system. That would be absurd. <laughs> but like, but you can make the... the uh, it's like you can use criticism to help adjust so that you are less liable to be criticized, right? It's like that's the that's the point right. of, of of you know ha- uh, constructive criticism, right? That's the term. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like not criticizing to bring something down; it's criticizing to improve something, right? Like this is a great yeah. a great movement. It's made society better. Let's make it even better again by addressing the problems with the new way of thinking. Exactly. Well, and for me too, like, I feel like a shift, you know, since when I was more of an anarchist is like, I actually Mm. like, do think there are some really cool things about our legal system, like innocent till proven guilty. I'm a fan of that actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, there are like situations in which it has really failed us. And there's a lot of like reform that has happened. Mm. That's been great. And there's more reform to do. Um, but yeah, the idea that like, um, mobs are more just than a court, right. That like pitchforks 
are the like more just <laughs> uh, uh-huh. weapon. Well, like I don't know. I feel like it's an idea that like the criminal justice system, the problems in it are there because the people who designed it are evil, or the people yeah. who control it are you know have have bad plans for the world, right? That it's you know just there to enslave people, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like as, as opposed to thinking maybe. The pro- some of the problems come from an actual compromise that needed to be made, right? Like there needed right. to be a solution to this very complicated problem of false allegations, right? Mm-hmm. And like that that's not an easy problem to grapple with and that there isn't a simple solution to it. Um, and so it's like not, um, you know, like the burden of evidence or whatever falling on, on the prosecution isn't just like some some idea they did to like try and keep victims down. Right, like maybe it was put in place for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And like, and maybe like an overly simplistic replacement, like believe victims, is does leave a lot to be desired. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I've like just sloganeering in general. I'm so tired of it because, yeah, like believe victims. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, (laughs) it basically encourages people to like do like take a mental shortcut. Basically, when you're in a situation. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, mm. we know the victim is right, but this is exactly what cry bullies exploit. Because, and right. I got an email that this person was saying how they've dealt with cry bullies, and they basically said it's really important for you to say I'm being bullied first. Whoever says it first, mm-hmm. like, can be like taken more seriously in a lot of, and and that's right. That's crazy. That's bad, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, like it. It cry bullies know that we believe victims. So if you want to get out of a situation or you want to be the good one, Mm. that might be a good way to do it. (laughs) Right. Tap into the same weird current of social power that is now flowing. The, 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 yeah. I mean, I do feel like I need to, it's like, I do think believing victims is probably a better policy than believing accused perpetrators. (laughs) If you had to pick one, right? Like I, I think, um, particularly for just like the general audience who isn't making legal decisions about what happens to people. Right. Uh, I think it's probably for the best, but also it's like, uh, don't like act on it unless it's uh, a bit more evidenced and yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe don't act on it at all. depends on what's happening. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, a slogan should not like flatten the particularities of a, a totally. one situation, right? We need yeah. to look at them individually with keeping in mind that, you know, uh, abuses can be charming and, you know, various kind of things oh. that in the past have worked against the reputations of survivors. Like let's keep those in mind and mm-hmm. then let's look at what we actually, what actually happened in this particular situation. Totally. I mean, it's like a, yeah. it's like a Bayesian thing, which is like, a, like the math probability stuff where it's like probably, I don't know, 90, 95% of people who claim to be abused are actually abused. And then um, further information you gather in either direction can move your odds for that particular case in one direction or the other, right? Like knowing that this person has made false accusations a lot in the past (laughs) probably bumps it way down real quick. Right. Whereas like a charming, a charming abuser probably doesn't move the line very much at all. Right. It's a, yeah, exactly. You gotta, yeah, (laughs) it was, it was actually really funny. Yeah. That person I mentioned at the beginning who has accused, um, the Dyke March of this stuff, like basically they like, uh, were talking to my ex and said that I had said things 
that I never said and that like I was upset in ways that I am not and never said I was. Um, and so anyways, the, the short version is that like, I got this angry message from my ex being like, how could you say this stuff? Blah, blah, blah. And I was right. like, you need to slow down. Cause I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and basically right. like it became super clear because it's like my ex and I have known each other for years mm. and we don't lie to each other. We're both like, we know that we are both yeah. honest people. So it was like clear as day that <laughs> the variable was this new person, right? Like yeah, totally. it was so clear. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of why I wanted to write the, the essay is, you know, and I did say like, usually you can't tell from a particular situation, like one event, if someone right. is a cry bully, it's a pattern. Totally. Right. Um, but if there is someone who's like consistently trying to destroy <laughs> uh -huh. everything good in your city, <laughs> maybe this is what's going on <laughs> yeah seems, seems possible <laughs> yeah for sure well uh you know there there is a we were gonna we're gonna move on to other articles uh and i do feel like there's a, a tie-in a pretty clear tie-in sort of with like um your article was about unintended consequence it's like you want to help improve the lives of uh of victims right of people who have been abused or, or oppressed people or that sort of thing um, and so you like change, try and change society so that you uh, listen more to victims. And the unintended consequence of that is that people who aren't victims can claim that victimhood and uh, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Similarly, uh, I think it's a, a very admirable goal to make the lives of transgender children better. Yeah. Um, and part of that is... Uh, to like increase their access to important medical care. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, do you risk giving inappropriate medical care to some children? Mm -hmm. If you expand access of access to children uh, of all these sort of uh, drugs and other yeah. things. And that's, <laughs> I think what we're going to talk about next. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, the article we're going to discuss uh, it was in the New York Times, and it's uh, the title is "As Kids They Thought They Were Trans, They No Longer Do," and the author is Pamela Paul. And I just have to say off the bat, like I am so relieved that this uh, article was written um, because this is sort of a topic, honestly, that is so hot and so touchy for good reason mm -hmm. um, that I have like been hesitant to talk about it. Um, right. And, but I, I feel ready and an article like this helps me feel ready because, mm -hmm. um, well, for a number of dis different reasons that we're going to get into, but I guess I did, I wanted to sort of, uh, give my stance off the top in case sure. anyone wants to yeah. know that. <laughs> you got a written um, statement or? <laughs> <laughs> I did honestly take some notes. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Cause there's some stuff I didn't want to miss, but yeah, I mean, the short version is. I support adult transition and I believe mm -hmm. that uh, gender dysphoria treatments should be available and funded by our public health system. We're in Canada. We have one of those. <laughs> um, I also support tr youth transition if there is thorough screening, treatment, and support for mental illness, neurodivergence, and trauma. And if there is a period of watchful waiting to see if the dysphoria persists over time. Um, the other thing I would say, like, I think the 
most beneficial therapist for a gender dysphoric child or teenager to see would be one who is neutral to the outcome, right? They don't consider transitioning to be like a failure or a disaster, um, but they also are aware that symptoms presenting as gender dysphoria can be caused by other types of distress, uh, which includes internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think... um, there are just trade-offs, right? There are trade-offs to puberty blockers. There's trade-offs to uh, hormone replacement therapy. There's uh, There are trade-offs to surgery. Um, and I think, I think like questions around, first of all, informed consent. Does someone have mm-hmm. all the information to make the decision? And secondly, like, are they cognitively mature enough to make decisions that are permanent and irreversible. Like those I think are like really worthwhile questions to talk about and they're not settled. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I do. I I was wondering, (laughs) I knew we were going to be talking about this and, um, and it's, I feel, I think we feel similarly that like it's a bit of a, it feels very hot button and like a bit uncomfortable to talk about. And I was trying to think of why, and I think what it comes down to for me is that um, there, I feel like there's this, like, th- that things that are seen as innate, there's, like, an agreement that we shouldn't discriminate based on those things. Mm. Um, whereas things that are choices, I think, are, uh, l- there's less agreement, should we say, <laughs> about whether or not you should discriminate on people's choices. Um and just like just in the headline of this, um, as kids they thought they were trans, they no longer do, sort of gets at that dichotomy, and I feel like uncomfortably <laughs> puts it in some ways into the choice category in a way that feels a little scary, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. I, I don't think that there should be any discrimination against you know non-binary or or, or transgender folks, but. I don't know. It's just scary to even admit that like uh, sometimes a kid will come out as trans and then change their mind because mm-hmm. like that the model of uh, I don't know in, in my head it's it's like um, I don't know it's, it reminds me of like homosexuality right that it's like it's not not a choice it's something that some people uh, are some people are, you know everyone's on on the spectrum somewhere mm-hmm. um, and that it's like not uh, not a a choice and therefore should never be discriminated against. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, so it just feels, it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. And there are sort of like competing narratives, like even about what trans means, right? You have like, right. you know, binary people that trans transition from female to male or male to female. Mm. Um, and I, I would guess that those people are much more likely to want medical treatments. Um, There's also lots of people who consider themselves non-binary or gender fluid or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of those people want medical treatments, but many don't. And um, there's a real material difference in the group of people that like, you know, like I know the thing is, is like if someone like gets a hysterectomy, like, and Mm -hmm. they're no longer producing hormones naturally like they have to take hormones <laughs> for the rest of their lives right so you know um there there's like a permanency to those 
to those decisions. And, and it, mm-hmm. it is uncomfortable to talk about, um, because, well, <laughs> for many reasons. Um, <laughs> but I think like one thing that's really awkward about it, like, is that, um, basically <laughs> people who detransition are mm-hmm. like largely shunned by the left and mm. it's really sad. It's something that really bothers yeah. me. Um, when I, when I stop being like so intensely into social justice land, one of the things I noticed was like just the absolute disgust that people have for people who detransition. And it's sort of like this like sad cycle where because mm. the left is not willing to talk about detransition, the detransitioners who want to get their story out can only talk to the right-wing press. The left-wing press doesn't even touch it. So then Mm. people point at the detransitioners and say, look, they've got this right-wing agenda, like blah, blah, blah. Right, why are they on Fox News or whatever? Exactly, and it's like they would happily be, they'd talk to anybody who wants to talk to them, but, you know, we don't talk to them. So, like, where are they supposed to go? And that's Mm. a real change in this article. Like, there are a couple detransitioners that are interviewed um along with a variety of specialists um right, right. and it's in the new york times not a traditionally like uh right-wing mouthpiece right it's like a yeah i don't know pretty down the middle lefty kind of kind of paper i think <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah definitely it's particularly in recent years mm-hmm. um yeah so was there anything particular that you wanted to talk about in this article or should we just sort of slowly make our way through it well uh Yeah, I think we can just make our way through it. That sounds good. Okay, cool. So the beginning of the article, the first uh, detransitioner that we meet, uh, her name is Grace Powell. And um, she really remembers um, kind of absorbing, well, having a lot of distress as a teenager, feeling very alienated during um, puberty and, you know, kind of coming to believe that gender dysphoria was at the root of this distress. And um, this is a quote, uh, the narrative that she had heard and absorbed was that if you don't transition, you'll kill yourself. And later Mm -hmm. in the article, there's a parent actually who, um, with her child in the room, was told by a professional, like, would you rather have an alive son or a dead daughter? Or maybe it was the other genders. But um, (laughs) the point being, like, it's really, it's crazy because we, there, there's a phenomenon known as suicide contagion, right? Like, yeah. I believe that that is well established. And so there's a lot of care around how to talk about suicide and how not to talk about suicide. And the mm-hmm. idea to like put a parent or a kid in the position yeah. of like, if you don't do this, you <laughs> will literally die. Like that is awful and it also is not supported (laughs) by the evidence that's currently available no i mean definitely not like uh as a an all or nothing statement right uh it's yeah you know even if it is shown to reduce suicide rates not it's not 100 percent on one side and zero percent on the other exactly well and and to just take a step back in the article um just it is i feel like of note that most teenagers feel uncomfortable in their bodies at some point because puberty is like a weird transitional period for everybody um so it's it's there's something interesting i think about um 
about like taking a universal experience and like making it pathological or making it like a an identifying feature. I don't know. I feel like you see for sure. <laughs> like I, I <laughs> like the videos. I there was like a video I saw, and it was like a guy who had like metal sheets, and he'd shake them, and they'd go like wubba 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 in like the <laughs> satisfying way. But like the the comments were all about like everyone who likes this video is neurodivergent. And it's right. like one of those things where it's like, well, actually everyone thinks it sounds cool. But like <laughs> yeah. it can become like a, I don't know, like something that people build identity around. And mm -hmm. I, could, I don't know, I could totally see that happening around um, like having a trans identity. Um, For sure. And if, if you're feeling uncomfortable with how your puberty is progressing or feeling uncomfortable with sexism in society or all the all sorts of things I feel like could be... Um, made into content that is like if you you know check these 10 boxes uh you might be trans absolutely i mean that's the thing like puberty is so distressing for so many people <laughs> and just that yeah. time of life is like really conflict-ridden for a lot of time like i was mm -hmm. miserable like yeah 14 yeah. 15 16 was uh -huh. awful <laughs> and that's like super common and so yeah i think like one thing that the detransitioner uh, Powell said that really stuck out to me mm. was that at no point during the medical and surgical transition did mm -hmm. anyone ask her about the reasons behind her gender dysphoria. Um, and so right. I'll quote here, but basically, um, yeah, at no point was she asked about her sexual orientation. And at no point was she asked about any previous trauma. So neither the therapist nor the doctors ever mm. learned that she'd been sexually abused as a child. And so for me, I'm like, uh, it blows my mind that like <laughs> basically gender care seems to have been like compartmentalized. Right. Yeah. This is totally what I was, I, I, I have in my notes here. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And right. it's like, if you go into a gender clinic, exactly. That's their thing. Right. And then they that's refer they you do. to the endo endocrinologist, right. Who does hormones. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, that seems to be the pipeline, um, that a lot of countries are developing. Um, yeah. Is like, you know, we'll have these clinics and kids can go to them. Uh, and that uh, at this clinic, we treat, uh, things around gender identity. So, you know, we don't treat things around trauma or poverty or sadness or malaise or depression or autism or anything else, right? It's like, we're, we're the gender clinic. You come to us, we help you with your gender stuff. Yeah, <laughs> And it's like, exactly. but the gender, I feel like, is part of such a complicated web of uh, life and like finding who you are. And um, yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird silo. And I feel like it, it is a silo and sort of... Um, like just integrating it more fully with other parts of the medical system might help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, that's kind of what, cause I've been, um, I've been thinking like, uh, I do know a handful of um, detransitioners in real life. Um, mm -hmm. But in general, like a lot of the stories I hear of uh, detransitioners who are really unhappy with the care they received. Um, a lot of them are from the States. A lot of them are mm -hmm. from the United Kingdom. And I don't know if that's just, a coincidence or whatever. Right. right. Um, but I hadn't seen a lot from Canada. So that actually made me wonder, I was like, you know what, maybe we're doing it differently mm. up here. Like maybe, um, there's, there is actual care, like mental health care is like incorporated in, or there's like more right. thorough screening or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And unfortunately, <laughs> this article has an example from where we live, British Columbia, Canada. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So this was super illuminating to me. Um, because, yeah, I'm like, am I just imagining a problem here? Right? Like, mm -hmm. maybe right. we do screen kids super well. And so totally. I, I have no reason to be concerned because it's already <laughs> happening. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, um, we made it to the New York Times. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, there is this uh, trans man and registered nurse who used to work at a clinic in British Columbia um, uh, in like a gender, like, treating gender dysphoric youth. Um, and he transitioned after a comprehensive screening when he was 33. Um, it resolved his dysphoria. He, he had a good outcome and is happy with his transition. Um, but when the gender affirming model, and let's just, uh, let's talk about what exactly that means after this. Um, mm -hmm. when the gender affirming model was first introduced at his clinic, he was instructed to support the initiation of hormone treatment for incoming patients, regardless of whether they had complex mental health problems, uh, experiences with trauma or were otherwise severely unwell. Um, that, right. that was a quote and it says mm. further when he referred patients for further mental health care, rather than immediate hormone treatment, he said he was accused of what they called gatekeeping and had to change jobs. This is a <laughs> trans nurse. So right. gender affirming care, um, mm. that is a particular model that is basically based on informed consent, right? It's like mm. you come in, uh, you tell us that you want access to this. We tell you the risks and benefits, and then you decide. And if you decide you want the treatment, we give it to you. Um, mm. And this is a re response to a really like rigorous um, assessment that there were in earlier decades where like it was right. incredibly difficult to transition medically. And like, basically like this is going to sound kind of crazy, but like, the doctor had to like decide if you would be like attractive after your surgeries <laughs> and treatments. And if they wow. didn't think that you could pass, like they would might just deny you based on that. Right. Right. Well, and like the whole system, every step I assume would be set up to uh, limit your right to be like, well, right. you got to check all it. these hundred boxes. And if you don't check a single one, you're out. Uh, yes. And this system maybe is like a response to that old, old style of, uh, not letting anyone get treatment or very few people. Exactly. Yeah. It also used to require you to live for like a full year as the gender you want to transition to. And you can imagine mm. like that that could be distressing. Like um, if yeah. you have not physically transitioned at all, but you have to mm. like dress mm -hmm. as if you had. Um, so yeah. I totally think there were issues with that, but I think basically the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction at this point. Mm -hmm. I actually think that informed consent uh, is a great model for adults. Uh, I think that right. that's very reasonable. Yeah, like we, totally. we don't need to like um, be super like <laughs> selective yeah. and scrutinize people incredibly closely if they're adults. Um, yeah. And some adults will regret transitioning as an adult, um, but we all yeah. make mistakes or change <laughs> our minds. So totally. yeah. Yeah. When an adult <laughs> makes that sort of mistake, it's sort of like, well, you were grown up. You could, you could have seen this coming, you know, I don't know. Like uh, on some level, it feels like there's a, 
um, some level of responsibility that grownups have when they make decisions like that, right? And it's yeah. not sort of job of the the state to uh, prevent grownups from making mistakes so much. Yeah, for sure. Although I will say that, like, there <laughs> are people who seem to say that, like, the consent process was, like, lackluster for them and that they didn't fully understand, oh, okay. like, yeah, the risks like... or possible complications. Totally. Yeah, or yeah maybe any sort of medical thing. Them that doctor needs to thoroughly go over the, the risks of, of what could go wrong. Uh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like bottom surgery is like mm. incredibly invasive, particularly for trans women. And that doesn't mm. mean no one should get it, but like some people experience lifelong incontinence, right? Some people can never have an orgasm again. Like, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, if you don't know that there's a possibility that those things will happen to you, right? Like, yeah, that's oh, going to be devastating if that's what your outcome is. Yeah, uh, 100%. And I feel like that's just um, my understanding is that sort of the standard for all like surgical procedures is that the doctor needs to go over in almost excruciating detail everything that could possibly go wrong. And you have to, you know, sign your name next to every uh, every little bit that you're consenting to. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and earlier when you were saying like that, mm. um, like puberty is distressing, right. And maybe we're, yeah. we're pathologizing something that's very common. Mm. Um, there was the, what's her name? I think, um, the founding psychologist of the first pediatric gender clinic in the United States, her name is Laura mm. Edwards Leeper. And, mm -hmm. um, she has really noticed that there's been a, a huge demographic shift in who is coming to right. gender clinics. Um, and that previously, um, it would have been people that had like lifelong dysphoria, you know, memories of dysphoria from like two, three, four years old, right. you know, the parents noticed it, like it's very persistent. Um, mm. and now she's noticed that, uh, most of her parents, her patients have no history of childhood gender dysphoria. Um, right. and also it's what I've heard is that it's way more, um, biological women or, or cisgender women or however yes. you want to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I came across the same thing. I think for the, those Dutch studies that everyone talks about, I think was almost all, um, uh, <laughs> uh, people with penises, uh, who didn't mm -hmm. want them anymore. Um, broadly speaking <laughs> yeah. and, and who sort of hadn't wanted them since uh, a very early age and sort of, uh, you know, had always knew, known that about themselves and uh, that that has uh, changed lately. <laughs> yeah, totally. And let's talk about the Dutch study next. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, basically like there, there's this very controversial <laughs> phenomenon called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And right. so it's the idea that, um, that there's sort of possibly like a social contagion element, um, to right. teenagers, like, um, becoming dysphoric or experiencing mm -hmm. gender dysphoria. Um, and they have not experienced it like earlier in their childhood. It comes in at puberty, basically. Um, the Dr. Edwards Leeper has also noticed that that type of patient frequently comes in, um, uh, with mental health issues that are unrelated to gender, um, right. and yeah, it's, I don't know, it's this really interesting thing that the idea of ROGD, because 
basically like a lot of trans activists find that to be sort of, um, first of all, they, they'll say it's unscientific and they, they also basically find that it maybe like undermines the idea that those people are trans, right? right? Maybe it's saying like, well, first of all, it's saying that you can like decide to be trans because you think it's cool or because your friends are doing it, which is not like how, um, trans activists generally want us to understand gender dysphoria. Totally. Yeah. I feel like it gets back to that idea of like, is it a choice or not? Uh, exactly. Yeah. That pushes you into thinking it might be a choice, uh, might be undermining. Um, yeah. I don't know. People's civil rights, which you don't want, but <laughs> you also have to tell the truth about what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one thing that was super interesting in the article was it was basically saying that like, um, like advocacy groups, like suggest that news media, like never use the term, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, so it's basically, there are a lot of efforts to basically suppress that idea and call it invalid and unscientific, but what's interesting, um, and I don't actually really have a stance on that. I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't know enough to like really know, but it it seems reasonable that like there's this new pop, uh, population of people going to the clinics and they might have a different sort of uh, path for having gotten there. Um, and one thing that really stood out to me was, um, basically, I don't know if I can find it, but, um, it's really common. Oh, here we go. Um, in a recent study about, of about 78 detransitioners that were surveyed, 40 of them, said they had suffered from rapid onset gender dysphoria. Hmm. So that's like a good half of people who transitioned and subsequently regretted it and detransitioned. Right. Yeah. They consider that to be a, a real phenomenon that impacted them, right? So that right. like is really, I found that very fascinating. Totally. Well, and it, it makes me think that like if you're trying to, again, like give the healthcare to the the right children um mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 you also worry about giving the health care to the wrong children um whether or not it's a rapid onset case seems like it could be a, a valuable indicator right like um yeah for sure if you're if you just are trying to, <laughs> to do good medicine where you're you're not um giving unnecessary treatments and also you're giving as many necessary treatments as possible maybe that's maybe that's part of it right like ask the parents like when this kid was uh younger a few years ago have you know, when did this, these feelings start showing up? Right. And, and if they started showing yeah. up, you know, recently, that doesn't mean like, okay, well, no treatment ever. You're making it up. It just means like, right. maybe we take a different path of treatment, right? Maybe we, uh, do things in a different order. Maybe we keep like the medicine and the surgery for further down the line. Um, yeah, exactly. See, see what happens. I do. There's this other, another part of it that feels, I don't know, I, that worries me a bit is the idea of putting so much importance on like the physical body and having it be just how it needs to be to make you comfortable. Yeah. Um, Cause I just feel like that's another thing. Like being a teenager, everyone's uncomfortable. And like, I think a lot of people have something about their body that makes them uncomfortable. And, and I just worry about any sort of um, like implicit uh, offer to someone that's like, Oh, you're uncomfortable with your body. These are the steps we can do. And then you'll feel good. (laughs) And and that does, I mean, that's obviously how it goes for some people, but I I feel like it's, it's not, 
I don't. It makes me think of like eating disorders, right? The idea of like, well, you you feel over, you know, you feel like you weigh too much. The solution is you need to weigh less, and it's like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> no one, no, obviously no one says that about eating disorders, and I, they're different in a million ways. I'm not trying to uh, say sure. they're the same, but uh, <laughs> but there is, I don't know, something something strange in there, like. Um, well, I think just deciding, like telling children and their parents <laughs> that there is one solution to gender right. dysphoria, right? That there aren't options <laughs> like that, yeah, I oh. think, is like a huge part of the concern, right? Yeah. Um, well, and it feels a little contradictory to me, too, where it's like I, I, my impression is part of the idea is that your body doesn't need to align with your right. gender identity, Um so the idea that like the most important treatment avenue is to get those two things in alignment feels, I don't know, like it, it doesn't really, I, it doesn't quite track for me. I'm, I'm sure there are explanations, <laughs> but in, in my head, it feels a bit like, like, wait, yeah, can't we just say like, cool, yeah, you can be whatever gender you want. Um, and that's, yeah, go for it. Yeah, that doesn't mean you have to make any quick decisions. Yeah, yeah well. It's interesting. I mean, first of all, I'd say like part of the explanation for that is that there really are different camps between the people who are, you know, you could call them like gender abolitionists, right? They're often non-binary or gender oh, okay. fluid. Right. And yeah, it's like, you know, you don't need blank to be a man, um, you know, mm. and then you've got like the derogatory term is transmedicalist or even true scum would be the Tumblr verbiage. <laughs> and that's uh -huh. for people who say, like, you have to have gender dysphoria to be trans, like, period. That's the defining characteristic. This is like a medical okay. issue this or even mental illness. Um, right. And yeah, that's not hmm. the same thing as just like wanting to wear a dress, <laughs> you oh, know? OK, OK. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see what you're getting at. That like the. Yeah, yeah. OK, that tracks and. Well, I, I follow, but it doesn't seem to align with my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and this is something that I think um, needs some improvement is like, so So we have a lot of um, advocates for um, like gender affirming care for children and youth um, yep. who are trans and who, and most of them, uh, transition as adults because it's very recent, right? The, that we're right, yeah, even able to transition younger people. So, um, a lot of those people feel very strongly that they would have like been happier, their life would have been better and easier if they had mm. been able to transition as a youth. And right, they, I, I don't doubt that actually. I, I think that that in the case of people who are like really happy with transitioning in their outcomes like it is likely that if they started mm. earlier they would have still you know been happy with the outcome but the thing is there's a couple things one is that those people are speculating because they didn't transition as children right sure. so they're pretty sure you know that it would have been good for them but again like i don't know puberty blockers can you know, lower your bone density. Um, mm. If they're given at too early in puberty, they can make it so you can't orgasm ever. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there's, or even like for a vaginoplasty, you need to um, basically have enough flesh to use to create the neo-vagina. Right. <laughs> and so again, if you get blockers too early, you could actually have surgical complications later. So 
I just want to take what the trans people who uh, transition as adults, like I want to take their opinion with a grain of salt. I still think it's super important and it needs to be one of the groups that we listen to, but yeah. it's not the only one. There are lots of adults mm. walking around who at some point um, experienced distress, distress around puberty, around their bodies and mm. they didn't transition and they're glad. And yeah. that's a group that like, could also be a model for young people when they're like trying to imagine what their future looks like. Right. Um, and that's, that's a piece that I just feel like gets, um, gets missed. Right. Because there, again, people, a number of people who desist, um, or who detransition basically were, um, scared to be gay. And they thought that like, if they transition, then they could be in a heterosexual relationship and that would just be like so much easier, um, to go through the world with. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I just, I feel like I'm worried about like the narrowing of options for young people. Right. I Mm. don't see like medical transition as like an inherently bad thing, but I do think that, um, yeah, children having to decide, um, to like, yeah. Can, can they decide on like permanent irreversible, um, decisions that's really up in the air for me. And I guess the last thing I want to say about that is that like children can have a hard time, like advocating for themselves and going against an authority Mm. figure, right? Like if you are surrounded by like everyone who believes in the gender affirming model of care and you know, Mm. your parents are like, yeah, like this is a good idea. Your doctor's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Your therapist, your nurse, like everyone who you're talking to about your gender dysphoria is, um, believes that this is the right choice and earnestly believes it. They're not trying to trick you or hurt you or anything, but that's just what they believe to be the best case for you. Mm. Like, does it, does a young person like have the ability in that moment to be like, I actually think I'm changing my mind or I'm, I'm not so sure yet, or I'm kind of scared of like surgery. I don't, maybe I don't want to do that. Right. And there actually was a detransitioner in this story Hmm. who basically said like, before she got top surgery, she was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm so young. Like I can't believe I'm about to do this. (laughs) And she still did it. Right. Like, did anyone ask her, are you sure? Like, do you still want to do this? It's okay right. if you don't. Have you changed your mind? Like, yeah, this is totally. optional, right? Well, I, and I wonder, though, how many, if, if some of those questions would be, um, like, people would have problems with you asking, are you sure, too many times? Or, right, like, should the doctor, um, I don't know. But yeah, because I think you're right. It reminds me of that when you go to a restaurant and the person comes up, the wait, the, you know, the waiter comes up and very quickly is like, so, food's all good? And it's like, right. They don't want to, they're <laughs> yeah. not really asking, right? They're just saying, like, yeah, say yes, and then I did my duty, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, like, occasionally you get the server who's like, all right, you know, we're looking for feedback, anything, anything you think about the food, right? It's like, um, yeah, the doctor could ask, are you sure, in, a, in either way, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, yeah, you're sure about this, right? And it's like, yeah, of course I'm sure. <laughs> you sure you want to do the right thing, right? You sure totally. you want to do the thing that's going to make your <laughs> life better, right? Like, yeah, but I feel like people might yeah. have issue with um, 
with a Doctor Who gets <laughs> goes too far the other way and is like really, really uh, like pausing and like almost I don't know, like really making room for that negative response um, might feel like trying to yeah. evoke the negative response, right? Well, you're a hundred percent on point about that because. <laughs> Um, there are people who believe that anything outside of gender affirming care um, is basically transphobic and also conversion therapy. Conversion therapy gets hmm. invoked when a therapist is not immediately affirming. And this is another thing where I'm like, I right. first was like, maybe this is a right wing conspiracy theory that like, you know, <laughs> yeah, if, okay. if you're like, you know what, I think, you know, you're going through a lot, you have an eating disorder, you have OCD. I think maybe we should like, you know, take some time to, uh, deal with those and, and also gender dysphoria yeah. and let's check in in six months about like whether you're still feeling like you want to transition, like that, that yeah. approach gets denounced as, um, conversion wow. therapy. Um, and this article showed me that it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory, that there are like multiple therapists that are um, profiled in the article mm -hmm. that basically were investigated or like were at risk of losing their licenses um, because they basically take um, like an exploratory approach, or it's also called watchful waiting sometimes where you're like, all right, let's, let's just slow down a bit. Let's, hmm. you know, take time to, again, assess neurodivergence, assess mental illness and trauma oh, and, yeah. and just like, let, let, let it, uh, let it become clear whether this is with, whether gender dysphoria is like the correct diagnosis for the distress or whether yeah. there's a different one, right? Or even just, like, is this the right treatment? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, if, you know, if someone's really stressed out about all these things and also is having, like, gender dysphoria, is the is the right first line of treatment um, puberty blockers? Or might the fir best first line of treatment be something else? Like, it's, uh, mm -hmm. there's lots of lots of ways to, to help people, um, particularly people who have a lot of uh, troubles. <laughs> And, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and the Dutch study, let's talk about the Dutch study. So, <laughs> um, this article is fascinating because somewhere in there, it said like that it's basically taken as like gospel in the right. U S and Canada. Mm -hmm. And in my limited experience, that is true. It's basically like the Dutch study tells us what we need to know. Um, it's the science right. is settled, you know, this yeah. is, this is, it's basically uh, the study that's often used to be like, here is why gender, the gender affirming model is the way to go. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but as it turns out, like the Dutch study has been widely criticized and there are like some particular things that feel really important to point out about it. Mm -hmm. One of them was that the Dutch study excluded people who had serious psychological conditions. Right. So these people that are, these young people that are showing up at these gender clinics who have an eating disorder, OCD, anxiety, depression, autism, ADHD, whatever, those people yeah. would not have been eligible for the Dutch study. Right. 
Um, Which I, I, it's like I get when you're doing a study, you might do that because you, yeah. you're looking for, you know, it's like a, an early stage study that you want to have like nice clean data for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're like, let's, you know, let's make sure we're only studying this one symptom. Uh, totally. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that means you can only apply the results to a, a similar population. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, there was no long-term follow-up with the study's participants. Um, a number of people dropped out. Like, um, yeah. I guess some people think there are method even methodological flaws and weaknesses with the study. Mm. Um, and it is a study that is presented as, like, definitive. Um, and, yeah, it just, it makes it, like, again, we're talking about unintended consequences, right? Like, yeah. Obviously, children with gender dysphoria were underserved by the old model. I think that that's like pretty uncontroversial <laughs> to say. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> or not served at all, you could even say. <laughs> or not served at all. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I think like what's just so distressing, I guess, like being mm. a leftist who has the concerns that I do is just that it is like literally considered transphobic um, by a lot of people to like say what I've said today. And that like, honestly really breaks right. my heart because like yeah. <laughs> my, I have tons, this is going to sound like, mm. you know, my one black friend thing, but like, this is, <laughs> this is my community, right? Like these yeah, are totally. like people that I've dated. These are friends. These are people that I care about so much. I mean, I guess I'll, throw a little uh <laughs> um fun surprise in here but like i was on testosterone briefly i i bound my chest mm. for a while um like i considered top surgery and decided against it so it's like i don't know like i i don't yeah. feel like a total outsider to this and i also like i support the people who will be helped buy these treatments to get them. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm against like blanket bans. Of course I am because oh, totally. <laughs> like those are extremely harmful. Right. But it has just become such a heated culture war issue that, yeah, I just, honestly, I, I feel nervous about putting this out. We'll do it. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's that divisive basically to even say, that we we lack evidence, you know, that we need right. more research. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but I think we do. <laughs> and I think that, like, if the left yeah. starts, like, talking to and caring about detransitioners, like, a lot of them, that's what they're advocating for. <laughs> they want yeah. better research because if you think about it, like, they are, like, they're affected by trans care, right? Some of them, if they've like had hysterectomies, they continue to need endocrinological care. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah no, totally. Like, the ones I know, the detransitioners I know, again, they have lovers who are trans and friends who are trans. And like, they, there's no, like, um, they don't have like uh, any political agenda to try and undermine trans care. They actually just want it to be better. Totally. And who wouldn't want that? <laughs> right. That's what like, yeah, that's what can get so confusing about all this is it's like, 
the thing I want more than anything else is like much more robust, long-term, mm. comprehensive research so that we can get it right more often. Right. So that we right? truly know the best way to help people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's where we end it this week, eh? <laughs> I think so. I think that might be a, a good spot. Um, yeah. yeah so I got a lot off my chest today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really yeah. glad we did this. Yeah, I guess we see what people say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely let us let us know your take, listeners. Yes, please. Well, this has been Hot Take Think Tank. Until next time. 